Welcome to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer and director that has taken the immortality of the vampire and mixed it with the existential dread of the human experience. He's joining me today to talk about his recent short film, The Night Nurse, as well as his upcoming work, The Plutonians. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Tim Delaney. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 18th day of January 2024. I came across your short film, The Night Nurse, while scrolling through Alter one day and was immediately captivated by the surreal atmosphere of the nursing home, the despair of the protagonist, and the sensually evil nature of the antagonist as she entered the building. The story was thrilling, unique, and at times humorous, so I really enjoyed it, and I'm pleased to have you on the show today. Well, I'm pleased to be on the show. It's always a treat to get to talk about something that you spend a lot of you know time and care on, so thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, so the film is about an elderly woman in a nursing home named Tallulah who is having a lonely Christmas as she hasn't heard from her daughter. An unfamiliar nurse shows up to work the night shift, and this nurse turns out to be a vampire. I love films that are very contained, and while I know it's a cost-effective measure, some of my favorite films like Phone Booth are very contained in nature. So, since you both directed and wrote the film, how did you determine where the various scenes would take place within the microcosms of the reception area, the kitchen, and Tallulah's room, all set within the macrocosm of the nursing home? Well, first, that's a great question, because it's sort of an essential element to the movie how contained it is. The easy cop-out answer is that I'm a lazy person and making films is hard enough without, you know stretching our time and energy and money between a dozen locations, which, I mean, even as a cop-out, that has some truth. Like, films are very complex, they're very expensive, and there's a level at which it isn't so much, I mean, it is art, but it is art and engineering. You're sort of designing a machine that makes the art, you're building the production, and the, like, sleeker and more efficient you can make it, 
the more room you have to maneuver to actually practice the art craft part of it. So when I was coming up with this film, you know, is that like, this was a big part of it that attracted it to me is being like, it's honest to the story, right? This is the story of an old woman in a nursing home who feels very lonely and uh, very separate from life itself. So to kind of trap her in these immediate limited environments felt like a true emotional truth. So even, you know, putting aside being like, ah, isn't it so nice to only have to shoot in so many locations? Really, it was that this is the right way to tell this story. I also think that like at a deeper level, there's something about economy in art that always has really attracted me. Like all my heroes come out of like a DIY kind of like punk rock spirit. Like that's the music I like. That's the filmmakers that I really respect are the people who can turn rather than seeing a film of titanic scope that, you know, captures everything and anything in the human spirit and spends, you know, a hundred million dollars on like perfectly replicating 1925 Vienna or something like that. When you get those stories of like, even somebody like Roger Corman, who's like, you know, I designed my house. So one side looks like a Western and one side looks like a haunted house. And, and you can just, make art that way that always really inspires me that there are people who find a way to make art despite the limitations the financial limitations that are imposed on them it's that like three chords in the truth and like i've seen people spend like a hundred k on a short film and it's like it's unconscionable it's anathema it's like i could never even conceive of allowing that to happen at a spiritual level and so being able to make (laughs) something that like is real and honest and like tells a character story, but also is contained and fits within the scope of like a short film and within the financial scope of a short film. Like probably I should just be talking about like what an artistic achievement it is because I don't think many people are inspired by being like, no, we made it and we made it like fit within what we could achieve. But to me, that's like something that always excites me. Yeah. What is it about? Cause I can totally relate to that. Like, any kind of art, like I love minimalist art, like Stella. I love scaled down computer interfaces. I like everything to just be real intuitive and, you know, no unnecessary clutter. That's one thing I hate is clutter. So uh, I totally get what you're saying. I don't know. I can't remember the name of it, but the woman that played Skylar, Walter's wife in Breaking Bad, she made a horror film that is probably still on Shudder where it all takes place in a house and it's her, another guy and a neighbor across the street. And it is the most dramatic, thrilling thing I've ever seen. And it all takes place in just a residential house. It's crazy. That sounds bad. I would love to see that. I think her name's Anna Gunn, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. I, Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I've even heard of this. You know, Romero was an industrial filmmaker. He filmed industrial videos in Pittsburgh. And when he made Night of the Living Dead, he made a story that he could reasonably achieve with the resources that were around him. And I think that's one of the particularly inspiring things about horror as a genre. The limitations are, I mean, they're not, now that it's a very mainstream thing, but certainly for much of its lifespan was this very American independent, like, You have a vision, you have a few friends, you have $5, and you're just going to do the best you can with it. And there's a purity to making art that way and a purity to just seeing even what you can accomplish rather than beginning from the thing of like, well, if we're going to do this, 
we're going to, you know, pour as many resources as we can into it. We're going to make sure that it's big and maximalist and it's even believable at a certain extent. Like a liberating thing about genre, I think, is that not to like totally go on a tangent here, but a liberating thing about genre, I think, is that audiences are on your side. They want this from you. They are excited that you're making a vampire movie or a zombie movie or something. And that means that there's a tremendous amount of leeway in terms of like, the best you can give me is good because I'm here for it. I want it. I want that from you. And it's a very supportive audience relationship, which you will not find in everything. Mm. I don't know if that was even remotely relevant, but hey. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, you know, in the vein of less is more, a picture is worth a thousand words, your film sets a tone of loneliness and isolation depicted through Tallulah anxiously watching the doors. This is at the very beginning. She's in the reception area hoping for a visit from her daughter. And this is significant as the vampire, at least at first, seems to prey on the desperation of the lonely. And I'm assuming you're probably familiar with the term psychic vampire, which is often used for people that just kind of emotionally drain other people, not anything supernatural, just, you know, those <laughs> those people that are either always complaining or there's just something about them where they just, they drain the life out of you. But there are some that also believe in the literal extraction of a life force. So in the film, is the vampires preying on desperation a means of sustenance or merely a manipulation tactic? And could you kind of elaborate on this aspect of the film? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very straightforward question, and I'm going to give a very roundabout answer okay. and talk about why I was interested in telling a vampire story to begin with. Because it's a story, as you say, about sort of a lonely, isolated old woman. There's sort of a world in which, like, the vampiric element of this is not intrinsic to the story of an old woman in a nursing home who feels abandoned and feels like nobody cares about them, you know, that their life has no remaining value in it, which is really the basis of the story that I wanted to tell. But the reason I was attached to a vampire, the reason I was like, this is a vampire movie to telling a vampire story is because I think they're like a tremendously, I mean, it's exciting. One thing, I love vampire stories. Let's start with that. That's a very fun thing to do. But they're also like <laughs> such a flexible metaphor that we can use in so many different things. Like that's why they're so persistent and there's so many different types of vampire movies. There's something like so sticky about the idea about like their immortality or sexuality or like whatever we kind of need them to be. We can find ways to like fit this creature we've designed as a culture like into all these situations. So to me, the night nurse is just like, it's it's a personification of death. Like, that's what the movie's about. It's about the sort of looming specter of death. It's about death presenting an inviting front, being like, you can give yourself over to me. Your life doesn't hold any value anymore. You can surrender to me willingly. So as Tolubo's kind of losing this faith that like anyone even cares that she's alive, that there's anything really left for her other than just sort of sitting around in a waiting room, waiting for death to show up, which it has, that's sort of the basis of, of who the night nurse is at the end of the day. The emotional drain, it is to me important insofar as 
like death can present an escape. It can come to you in a way that is kind and it can come to you in a way that is seductive. It can wear many different faces and many different guises. And that was kind of the root of everything that the Nightingers did and how I wanted to think about this monster, even more so than thinking about sort of physically what the actual way she feeds is. Because I think it's very nice to build something that has a strong enough root emotionally that the audience can kind of feel for themselves what feels more honest. If you're watching the movie and you're like, this vampire feeds on blood, that's what they're all about. I like that that space for the audience to kind of breathe more life into the world, you know? So sort of a metaphorical representation of the fact that it's just as important as physical health as your will to live in the first place. I think it's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get even further into the details of the film. I know that we're talking about it and there are probably people listening who will not have seen it. But that's to me the basis of the drama. And there's many ways it could have gone, right? A story plays out in the way that it's going to play out. But I thought that that was just such a fascinating idea to me of like, this film ultimately comes down to an old woman confronting death in the shape of this seductive and sort of hypnotic offer from this vampire who is trying to feed on her vulnerability in that way. Well, the atmosphere of the nursing home significantly intensifies the horror due to the fact that when Tallulah discovers what the night nurse is doing to the residents, no one believes her. They're attributing her claims to senility and dismissing her as a crazy old woman. And additionally, Tallulah's helplessness is compounded by her confinement to a wheelchair. And other than an additional layer of vulnerability, was depicting Tallulah in a wheelchair useful in any way to the cinematography and the drama of the shots? And if so, in what way? Because this probably has nothing to do with any of your intentions, but... When I saw her wheeling herself away, I automatically thought of that long, I don't know if it was a dolly shot or how they did it exactly, Kubrick in The Shining with Danny on his trike going all through. I don't know. I don't know why I thought of that, but. <laughs> because I'm stealing from way better artists as you do. Even if it's, I don't have a picture of Danny on the trike up there, like the idea of those smooth camera movements that like Kubrick does in The Shining, like. It's one of the first Steadicam movies, which is a way that you can kind of get the camera to glide in an unnerving fashion. And like, that's what gives that movie that power is that the camera feels supernatural and spectral. And like, I mean, your question about the wheelchair is, I mean, this is the answer. Like the wheelchair was really kind of the moment that I decided to even make this movie in the first place. I've been toying around with the idea of this like central metaphor of a vampire in a nursing home, because I think nursing homes are fascinating and sort of death is an interesting subject for me. But I didn't have a short contained version of it. And then it kind of hit me all at once of just wheelchair, long, dark hallway, Christmas like that. I was like, bam, okay, this is visually we have it. It's in. So mm. it was an essential element to her character, but also to how we decided to shoot the movie. Like there's an added layer of helplessness to not being able to walk and run away. And we really wanted to make sure visually that the audience was drawn in and, and felt that. Like we made sure to sort of keep the camera always at that wheelchair height. We wanted everything around her to kind of loom over her that you're really sitting down with her. And 
that was even carried further in one of our this is I mean, this is truly inside baseball, really, I should just be talking about what an artistic triumph it is. But again, in the theme of taking your limited resources and putting them towards something that you think is really going to make the film sing, we rented like a nice dolly. And if you're not familiar with film terminology, a dolly is basically a big cart with wheels. You set up like railroad tracks and put the cart on it and you just move the cart with wheels back and forth. And it's fucking heavy and it's expensive. And it makes people tired as hell lugging that thing around. But that was the like real commitment we made was, you know, that's Danny Torrance on his tricycle and the camera gliding smoothly with him. That shot is Danny's, some of it's Danny's height, some of it's above him, but sometimes they're shooting up into him. And we're moving as smoothly as that tricycle in the hallway creates this fluidity that like, we're really sucked into that moment. It really feels cohesive and of a piece. And like, we wanted that creeping, slow, smooth move of the camera. But we also wanted to be able to follow Tallulah on wheels while she's on wheels. We wanted to like make that kind of cohesive visual feeling. And I think it really worked. I mean, it is also like any horror filmmaker will tell you that like a nice, long, slow, steady push in is like, that's the genre, man. That's the style. <laughs> that's what you want to do. So, you know, having the dolly is what we used to follow Tallulah around. But there's a core shot in this film where we're pushing in and in and in on the vampire's eye. And it's the same thing. It's the same technique. It's the same, you know. But yeah, the wheelchair, I mean, I know this is like a long-winded answer. And for a limited audience, who's going to be like, oh, hell yeah, you rented a dolly? When most people <laughs> will be like, either know what it is or be very unimpressed. So there you go. Well, so you conveyed Tallulah's situation of missing her daughter to the audience with two show-don't-tell shots. The opening scene where she watches people enter through the front door, and another where upon waking her phone, the lock screen shows a baby picture, and then once unlocked, it reveals no missed calls or voicemails. So do you think shots like these convey inner emotion better than dialogue? And can you talk about your writing process when coming up with the way you shot the phone sequence? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because... As proud as I am of this entire film, I always felt like the no missed calls voicemails thing was cheating a bit, like pretending to be show, but really it's tell. Like if there's text on screen being like, there's no Oh, voicemails. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're right. Like that's how it plays. But this is kind of the negotiation you're making when you're writing something is you're like, you need specificity. I went to film school and I actually still teach at film school. And there's sort of two ends of the spectrum that early films end up on, which is that they are very focused on tell and very focused on making sure you understand what is happening at a given time. But they can become very dry because they're just only telling you what the story is and you don't get to experience it. But on the other hand, you have people who are like, well, show, don't tell. So they just show you a lot of things, but it lacks the concrete specificity they haven't mastered that grammar of how to move between ideas. Not that I've mastered the grammar, it should be said, but how to move <laughs> between like, okay, we see an old woman, she is looking at something. So even to talk about, you know, this opening scene where she's sitting and waiting for her daughter to show up, like you learn certain tricks. And sometimes I feel like I can do myself a disservice by talking about, you know, filmmaking and artistry as sort of this very meat and potatoes engineering style, like, 
well, you run into this situation, what do you do? You use this trick. But to me, I think this is really what it kind of boils down to is that it ultimately is an art form that you can break into like very clear choices and actions you can repeat across different stories. So in the case of Tallulah sitting there missing her daughter, this is her innermost sort of emotional struggle at the moment. She's not just going to turn around and say like, ah, I'm alone and I'm missing my daughter. My daughter hasn't shown up on Christmas. And indeed, I've written those lines in different movies and you learn pretty quickly that the character's not going to say it. It doesn't matter how good the actor is. Like, the line's not going to work. So Mm. in that case, to show this innermost heart want, you invent a symbol or something to represent it. And in this case, it is another old woman saying goodbye to her daughter. And just in the way that Tallulah is looking at her, you're able to understand. You're able to put very distinctly in front of the audience, this is what's bothering her, that this person has this and she does not. And it invests a lot of trust in the audience because, you know, it doesn't say Tallulah is sitting here missing her daughter. And people really respect that and they embrace that, I think. But really, you know, a lot of the show don't tell. The trick with it is getting a degree of specificity so that the audience is not sort of left in a smog to kind of like interpret your parade of symbols that they kind of don't really know visually what you're trying to say. Anyway, it's a long-winded example. (laughs) I think that it's very interesting because at the end of the day, film is, it's like building a sentence with images and like people can really get lost in how to string those images into a sentence. Like, how to make it so the audience is logically following, okay, I see this and I understand what you mean by it. And I'm very proud of how that worked. Absolutely. Yeah, you incorporate traditional vampire elements like garlic and sunlight, and you do it in a very unique way, you know, considering it's nighttime, it's in a nursing home, and obviously she doesn't have access to like full-on garlic cloves. So uh, this improvisation adds a real thriller vibe to the movie, it seems to me. Were there elements from any specific films that influenced the making of yours? And if so, which ones? You know, I don't know that I can name a specific movie because I feel like I'm just stealing from the overall ethos of a creature feature. That's why I was able to come into this film with like a feeling of love for like the style Like, creature features are great. And I know I'm applying that super loosely and broadly because it's a vampire movie and it's that, that. But the idea that there is some sort of supernatural beast or creature or person that can be defeated by some ritual combination of spells and actions, yada, yada. Like, getting to have fun with that is a real blessing. And this is what I meant about, like, the genre elements. It feels like I make a vampire movie, right? People want to see the garlic powder. They want to see the sun lamp. They want to have fun with the idea of a vampire. Like, it's very freeing in that way. There's a way in which, outside of genre filmmaking, so much of what you're doing is trying to find ways to justify, like, the fundamental basis of the story you're telling. Like, the world is full of stories. Why am I sitting here for two hours, and you're going to tell me the story of, like, a child who discovers that the world is unfair? It's like, we've all been through similar experiences and it requires like a tremendous amount of artistry and a tremendous amount of skill to make those unique and powerful like emotional stories. And like, you know, as I was saying, this is the story about an old lady experiencing isolation and loneliness. There's a world in which, you know, you look at this and you say, well, like, should we even have garlic powder 
as a way that she escapes? Should we even have this sun lamp as a way that she escapes? And like, of course we should. This is the fun. <laughs> this is the joy of watching movies. Like you get the mm-hmm. audience to have fun with what they're seeing and you still get to tell this story. Like, yeah, it's the thriller vibe that you're describing, I think, is what even allows for that serious subject matter to exist, to make it like a full and complete story. Like, there's no reason the film has to be a vampire movie, except that if it wasn't, it would not work at all, which I think is a pretty good reason for it to be a vampire movie, if that makes any sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in that particular scene we're speaking about, When she's confronted by the night nurse, Tallulah is told by the nurse that she has a much different reason for killing the residents than it appears. The term angel of mercy or angel of death refers to a type of criminal offender, typically a medical caregiver, who kills patients under their care for various reasons, one being the belief that they're easing the person's pain. Were there any such individuals that were an inspiration for the story? And if so, which ones? I mean, it's definitely, as an idea, very much part of the inspiration. In terms of an actual person, I mean, the idea of an angel of mercy, they come out of real questions. Whether, I mean, there are people who are just killing people, and that's, yeah. you know, its own, <laughs> that's its own thing. But there is a thing, ultimately, we've all kind of thought about that, at what point is life not worth living? Like, at what stage are you only getting diminishing returns for existing. And the night nurse was meant to be one possible answer to that question. There's a version, right, in which like this offer of mercy is genuine. And like, that's what this story is about. But I sort of set out on this film with the idea that this is about Tallulah rediscovering the value of her own life. So ultimately, in terms of the, you know, angel of death, angel of mercy, Ultimately, the night nurse kind of has to be more of an angel of death because that's what really meant a lot to me was I didn't want to present a hopeless story that like you get old and then there's no point because I think Mm. we see a lot of that. I'm not an elder person and I will be one day and maybe I'll feel very differently about how I answered this question. But I also think you see a lot of narratives put out there that elder life doesn't have a lot of value. And I think that that's wrong. And I think that... Mm to contribute to that prevailing narrative would feel incorrect when there are people who can find value in their own life from within, even if there isn't that sort of greater social apparatus saying, hey, we value you. Hey, people want to see you and talk to you and be part of your life. You know, like it's an act of courage to stand against that and be like, no, I'm I'm still here and I still value the fact that I'm alive. Yeah, I was friends with an older gentleman. He eventually died, but he had, I mean, you talk about a wealth of health issues. But this man at the age of 66, I think, you know, he was in his 70s when he passed away. But like at the age of 66 was hit by a car. Oh, my God. And broken hip, broken shoulder. I think there was something else. Anyway, he got back, probably not to 100%, but got back up on his feet and was completely independent. And the one thing that I remember specifically about him wondering, like, why does he have like this zest that just you can't keep him down? He was one of the most artistic people I ever met, like just had this intense drive to produce art. You go into his house, he lived in a townhome, 
his entire living room wall to wall was just those, you know, I don't know what the dimensions were, just big ass canvases that are propped up against the wall. He did pottery. He did uh, calligraphy of all things. (laughs) Like I'd never met anybody that did calligraphy before. And so, yeah, I mean, as far as like when you get old, there's like not this will to live anymore. I don't know. I feel like one of the many answers is art. <laughs> totally. And that's a heroic story, right? It's mm-hmm. like that man is a hero. He's taken some pretty bad cards and times when other people might give up and saying like, you really only get one shot to enjoy your life as much as you can. And I'm going to find a way to enjoy it, even despite all of the things that other people might write me off for this reason, but like I'm still here and I'm not giving up on the fact that I'm still here. And that's that's why Tallulah, she's not just the main character, she's a hero in this story. These are complicated issues and I don't want to sound oversimplistic saying like, and that's why everybody is going to be happy forever because we know life is complicated and it can be very hard. But this was meant to be the story of a woman becoming a hero in standing up for herself and the value of her own life. Because that, you know, this is a horror movie. But I think that you can use horror and the horrifying aspects of life to say something like courageous and very affirming about like, about the value of life, about being alive, about being able to have happiness while you have the chance to have it. And that's what the film is really about to me. Yeah. And another, I mean, it's kind of intertwined with the aging process and dying and you know, the value you have for your own life. But it's also kind of a separate issue itself is the concept of being forgotten, you know, because it's kind of hard to value your own life when you feel that you've been forgotten either by loved ones or just, you know, society in general. And I was a hospice volunteer for a brief time, but had to quit due to illness. But to be perfectly honest, I don't think I could have handled much more because besides forming attachments to very sweet people who then passed away, I witnessed some deeply troubling family dynamics. And although the individuals I worked with had families present in their lives, I noticed others in homes who, I mean, seemingly had been forgotten. Could you share any insights or experiences that particularly influenced how you depicted loneliness and isolation in your film? Was there any kind of experiences in that vein that you kind of translated into the uh, screenplay? You know, I've never worked in a home. I'm going to be real. Like, I think I would have a really tough time doing hospice work. That sounds like exceptionally difficult and important. And I'm glad that there are people who are out there doing it. But must have been so devastating to be a part of that. And I've never worked in a home or done an elder care job. And probably the film would be a richer portrait if I had done those jobs. But the idea of loneliness and isolation, like that is something I can just relate to personally. Like it's not even really an act of empathy because if we're lucky to live that long, everyone is probably going to end up in some analogous situation, right? Like maybe we will have friends and family around us, but maybe we won't. And a big part was projecting myself into that future as much as, you know, thinking about my grandparents and other elder folk that I know. And that's also why, you know, these come out of personal fears. These are whole people. And it's kind of crazy that, you know, there's a logic to nursing homes. There's a logic to the way that we handle elder care to a certain extent. But it's also very strange that they're just 
these fortresses, these boxes, these black boxes that it's like, cool, this is the last place you'll ever live. You go in here and maybe some people will come visit you, but they're really kind of siloed off. And I think that that's particularly kind of devastating. It's one of the reasons I wanted to explore this setting is because more things should be set there. It's a part of life. It's a phase of life, right? That like, again, we should be so lucky to reach. We should be so lucky to be able to afford even, you know? But yeah, that's really a big part of that isolation is thinking about when I get there, if I get there, like, what's that experience going to be like for me? And what questions am I going to be asking myself? What doubts will I have? What challenges will I face? And yeah, that's where a lot of that came from, I think is narcissism and interest in my own personal well-being later down the line. <laughs> well, you know, everything we do on some level is based on our self-interest, right? It's true. <laughs> well, do you plan to make more horror films? And if so, will existential fears continue to be a part of the narrative? Yes. I mean, it's not an existential horror film. It's much more of a comedy. But I spent the past year and change working on a script that we're shopping around right now. and. It's basically, you know, Scream meets The Bachelor. It's a very fun, like, slasher movie that's also about how reality TV, you know, limits our empathy for people who are sort of served up to us as, like, essentially victims for our own entertainment to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. I won't get too Mm -hmm. far into it here because the question is about existentialism. But, like, that is kind of the thing. I've been working on coming up with another project after that, and almost all of them are about You know, I can't really get away from the fact of like the very idea of creating a character to put them through the circumstances that a horror movie asks them to be put through is such a fascinatingly strange thing, right? Is that like this person is ostensibly our hero, but if nothing bad happened to them, we would walk out of the theater and be like, well, that sucked. Like there's an existential (laughs) element to the idea even of telling a horror story of why we even want to engage with scares and negativity and experience these things and see somebody else experience these things. And it's not just a like purely palliative, like, oh, that's so nice. Now I feel better about my own fears. Like we get joy out of it. We get fun and thrills out of like seeing horrible things happen. That's always fascinated me. And I'm trying to find the right sort of box to fit it into. That's really going to like, you know, make that sing. Gotcha. So would you classify it as Do they say comedy? No, horror comedy, I think is how they classify it. Is that how you would classify it? Yes, this other film that I've been working on, absolutely. And yet even that one has its own weird existential meta level. Like, I can't get away from it. I don't know what is wrong with me, but I find it very difficult to just be like, this is the story of a man who lives in a house, and this is what happened to him on Tuesday. I like, I think part of it is just when you decide that you're going to dedicate as much time as it takes to make a movie or craft a really great script. It's very hard to enter into that endeavor without the feeling that you have something larger to say than just a script mm-hmm. and just a thing, you know? But maybe that's because I'm a self-aggrandizing, um, pompous ass. So, you know, who knows? It could be, well, maybe I'm just getting in my own way. But I do think <laughs> that that is, there's a joy to that. There's a joy to talking about sort of the larger questions in a fun, free context. And in that genre setting where it's a haunted house and there are spooky things happening and creepy thrills and you get to scream and shout and have fun and let it all out and then also reflect on some things that like might otherwise make you more uncomfortable, right? Like that immediate near-term like horror and terror and scares 
that flushes your system out to a certain extent, that then you can space to kind of consider some of these scarier, larger ideas. Well, circling back to the night nurse, I won't reveal whether the film has a happy or sad ending. Listeners at home, you will have to click the link in the description and watch the film for yourselves to find that out. But what do you hope audiences will take away from the film's exploration of the aging and dying process and the theme of being forgotten? We've kind of spoken about it broadly throughout the podcast so far, but more of a succinct, like, what is it you're really trying to hit home? I think what I would really like people to take away is to think about the people who are going through this. Like, this is what I was talking about, about the idea of the night nurse and euthanasia and angels of mercy and angels of death. And I don't think I have a right to unilaterally say, I hope people take away from this movie that all life is inherently valuable and nobody should be allowed to decide that they've had enough. I don't think that that is a fair thing, even though that is fundamentally part of the story. Instead, I would rather say that don't look at them only with pity and remember that they are people. They're not just people, right? They're us. Like, Mm -hmm. you will live through this, again, if you're lucky enough to get there. And extend some empathy. Like, celebrate their heroism and still being around. And call your grandparents if they're still around. Like, that's really kind of, when I talk to people about the movie, like, it's a fun thing to remind people of. Like, I need to be reminded. And I made this movie. Like, it's, it's a <laughs> nice thing to remember, to, like, reach out to the people who might be lonely in your lives. And they don't even have to be elderly. Like, we're all part of this human family. And, like, it can't be incumbent on other people to be the one to try to bridge those gaps of loneliness. Like, just give people a shout if you haven't talked to them in a while. And they always appreciate it. Great movie. Definitely enjoyed it. Well, so you wrote and directed the film and also edited, I always screw this up, edited it (laughs) alongside, I think it's Isaac Aliquin. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Okay. I understand from talking to other directors, it's often difficult to kill your darlings in the editing room, especially if it was a particular shot that was challenging to capture. So were there any shots like this that you had to cut? And do you involve someone else in the editing process for this reason? You know, I love to kill my darlings, to be honest. I mean, nobody does. It's a horrible process, but there is something (laughs) masochistic. There's a common maxim, right? That you write a film three times. You write it on the page, you write it when you direct it, and you write it when you edit it. And teaching at film school, I have been through enough experiences of seeing people who are still in the growing process, sort of Mm -hmm. saying they'll kill their darlings, saying that they want guidance and that they want help, but they just can't. And that doesn't mean that I'm, you know, a wizard of being like, no, I have no emotional attachment. The film is the film is the film. There's plenty of stuff in the night nurse, actually, that, you know, producers were like, you got to cut this. This is not working. And I held on to it for months, finding (laughs) ways to get it there. And it did work. Mm. And that's because I'm a genius and I can solve any problem. No, it's not. (laughs) Eventually, some things work out and some things don't. But the main challenge of this edit was not actually that there were sequences or shots that we had that we put a lot of effort into that didn't work. In fact, there's only a few shots that didn't make it in. But the real challenge was the wheelchair, like which was such an essential part of this. 
it's very hard to move in a wheelchair, especially on carpet, and especially if you're elderly. And, you know, our actress was a machine. She was incredible. But mm-hmm. I really didn't think through enough the fact that, man, like, we had a lot of work to do to make the film keep pace because the essential element of film as a medium is time, right? Like, every other piece of art, you can skip a page of a novel if you want to. Like, nobody's watching over your shoulder. You can read the sentence fast or slow. You can spend as much time as you want on, like, a painting. But film is, like, these seconds, they're your seconds, and I'm taking them. And if you are asking people to sit while like a very slow wheelchair tries to exit frame, like then your film is as much of a failure as a novel that just has a whole chapter about nothing. Like you need Mm -hmm. to continually engage the audience on an emotional level. And that's what made the edit very difficult. But Isaac is a really good friend. He's a really good editor. I had drove myself totally insane trying to get, just machine this thing down to like really be efficient and be sleek. And he really solved a ton of stuff. And that's why you bring somebody like that in, is just for more ideas. And just somebody who's going to be able to take a look at the problems you're facing. Because it's one of the fun things about editing, right? It's like trying to write a novel using clipouts from a newspaper. You only have the sort of phrases that somebody else already used. In this case, because I wrote it and I directed it, they're my phrases. But still, <laughs> you're, you're kind of collaging these things together. And people will really surprise you being like, oh, no, 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 this shot, that was meant for a totally different purpose. If we trim it exactly like this, we can use it here to tell the story. You know, that's what it always comes Mm. down to at the end of the day is is keeping that emotional connection to the audience and telling the story. Gotcha. Well, you mentioned it at the beginning, and I cannot remember what you said was where the night nurse was shot. I mean, I'm assuming not an actual nursing home. No, though, we tried. Uh, but unfortunately, there are HIPAA restrictions. And pretty soon after we started trying, I was like, oh, we can't do this. This is an absurd act. <laughs> we shot it at a hotel in uh, Fishkill, New York. And like, it was a really fun time. Uh, our production designer, Mark Wheeler, did a fantastic job of making it feel like a nursing home. We were very strategic about it because, again, like, we're not mortgaging the home, right, to like get the mm. budget for this film. So, Mark was very smart. He like got these railings to stick on for those long hallway shots. Like all these very strategic ideas around like what exactly do we need for it to feel like a nursing home? And he really pulled it off. I mean, it surprised some people that we didn't shoot in a real nursing home. It's so embarrassing the things that excite me, but being like, we're shooting at a hotel. The entire crew is staying at the hotel. Every location is in a different part of the hotel. Like to be able to design the machine that sleepily, that really gave us the space and the time to set up those dolly shots. Like it's all this weird symbiotic organism where like the more efficiently you can make the production, the more you can spend the time on designing the shots the way they need to be, the easier it's going to make your edit that you're going to do these things. And it's it really was a real boon to have found exactly a place that fits the visual look. I mean, we drove everywhere around New York and New Jersey trying to find a good hotel. And this was one of the first places we went to. And it was like, man, this is it. This is the spot. This has everything we need. Bam, bam, bam. And they were super nice to work with. Yeah, it was a fun time. Mm. Well, you uh, referred to her earlier as just an absolute machine. Emily Joan Mitchell, the woman that played the main character, Tallulah, is an older woman and had to get herself very emotionally riled up in multiple scenes. So 
Were there any particular challenges in directing an actress that is an older person where health concerns were something you had to take into account? And if so, how did you address and overcome them? Yeah, it was definitely a consideration in this film was sort of just, what are we asking somebody to do? Like, (laughs) it's a consideration in any film. And it's a consideration probably filmmakers don't consider enough because we're hungry artists and all resources are stretched thin. But in Emily's case, I mean, so I had another actress who was committed to this film, but she was an older actress and she slipped and she broke her leg. And so understandably, she had to pull out. And, you know, she's fine, so it was all okay. And it was with plenty of time to figure out, you know, another person. Not that that's the important thing, but (laughs) it was a very interesting casting process because... You know, we wanted somebody who who is old, who who can live that experience. But you're right. There's parts of this movie where, you know, she has to get very riled up emotionally. And so the casting process was me, you know, in a room with various older actresses kind of just playing the scene of like trying to get them to come out of this kitchen that she gets holed up in. So I'm sort of yelling and being like, ah, 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 and then they would scream, scream, scream. And Emily was so, like, all of them are great at it. But filmmaking can be very silly. And being like, hi, it's so nice to meet you. I respect you and I respect your work. Okay, I'm going to yell at you for the next, like, five minutes so that I can see how, <laughs> how, how big of a screen you can give me. Mm-hmm. But really the thing about Emily was I was worried. I was worried about the hours because, you know, it's like 12 hours shooting for a film set most of the time. And we're doing splits. So it was like half day, half night. And, like, that can be pretty damn late for an old person to be up. Mm-hmm. But she never complained. She just did it. You know, you don't want to ask too much of people, but she really was just so committed and so good and just brought it every take. And like, it's really a gift, like to have everything that I've talked about, like the designing of the machine and all the stuff about killing your dog, every bit of that only means something if you can get a real person in front of the camera where people are able to invest emotions in them and they're able to believe them in the situation and they're able to feel, they're able to understand with clarity what this actor is feeling. So they're able to understand with clarity the story. And she really brought it. She utterly crushed it. She was so nice and so sweet and awesome. What a stroke of luck for this film. Like, I really can't state it enough. Was it like, I wish I could remember the young actor's name, that video for... uh... E.T. when the young man's auditioning with Steven Spielberg and they just give him a, a little prompt and he just lays on this crying, like cries on command, just breaks down and Spielberg's like, all right, kids, you got the job. You got the job. Thanks for crying, child. I mean, it is funny. That's what casting is like. And that's the thing about actors, right, is they have to have their emotions on tap and like, God bless them, because I certainly don't. Yeah, it's the way that you're stringing that full sentence together when you're making a film is really emotionally you're stringing it together. This character is afraid and like it can be hard for people to understand who haven't worked on a film set. But just how much time passes or even how many days can pass between different shots in relatively the same scene or space and having an actor who can just say like, okay, this is kind of how upset I was. You know, that's your job as a director is to make sure that these things are cohesive and that it's planned in such a way that the actor can do these things. But when you have somebody who can do it, man, it just feels like you're getting paid for somebody else's work. Not that you really get paid (laughs) for this, but you know, you're just like, Oh man, thank God for you. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you achieved some very impressive effects with lighting and editing. I'm not familiar with what is taught in film school, but are methods like these taught or are they more like the uh, secret sauce that you develop once you become a chef, so to speak? And if it's the latter, could you share your process for determining how to achieve the intended effect? And the effect that I'm, there's a few different things, but the one that I'm really thinking about, I don't want to create a spoiler, but there was bright light and somebody's demise involved. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was so fun, man. I'm going to spoil it because it's my movie okay. and who cares? All um, right. Just as, is, as long as you're okay with it. <laughs> I'm okay with it. I appreciate you doing that, though, of course. Yeah. What he's referring to is the climax of the movie where our dear old lady, Tallulah, manages to turn the tables on the night nurse by blasting her with a therapeutic sunlamp, which, of course, will have UV and therefore the vampires mm-hmm. is destroyed. And, you know, the screen becomes very washed out with this very, you know, powerful light. And the two things about that one was, again, a lot of this is meat and potatoes. How do we even solve this problem? You know, this is a mm. vampire movie. This vampire has to be vanquished. I don't have the budget to make her melt into a pile of ashes. I don't want to pay for extensive effects work to have her be staked through the heart and then blood to gush. Like, there's a lot of ways you can solve this problem. And to a certain extent, mileage may vary on how successful you think this answer was. But the idea of using light and washing it out I was really proud of how we were able to achieve that whole thing with really all we had was, you know, we just had some lights. That's it. And we had an actress at the end. We had lights Mm -hmm. and an actress. And this is what I love about horror movies is like, you just do it. You go for it. And Rachel, who played the night nurse, I mean, she's a great actress. And I'd worked with her on something else. I was really impressed with her. But what was shocking doing this movie was how game she was. The scenes of the nightmares melting. I mean, she did several takes of that. And I was like, I wish this could be the whole movie. Because she's just mm. spewing blood from her mouth and writhing around on the wall. While all of us are, you know, you got the camera person, the sound person, all the people who said, well, we're all staring at her. She's just like, Wah! like freaking. Mm. It was such a joy to do. And she was so good at it. You're like, what a shame. This will only be like a second and a half to five seconds of this movie. This performance, I was like, Incredible, incredibly well done. Mm -hmm. In terms of actual lighting, I mean, there's a lot of good lighting in the movie, but that's all RTP. That's all Inez, who did a great job. I'm an idiot when it comes to that stuff. Like one thing that I learned going to film school is that like there's a lot of people who are a lot better at a lot of this stuff than I am. And like (laughs) that's being a director is being like, no, I'm not good at this. And I really need help, you know, sorting through this stuff. So like those long shining hallway shots, right? There's tube lights all down that hallway to, so you can see the hallway and get the scope and scale of it. Those tube lights, not in the hotel. Mm. We rented tube lights and we strung them up all down the hallway just to get that shot. So we got these tube lights up top. We got the railings that Mark put in. Like It's all about that synthesis and getting those things together. And like, yeah, it was really thanks to the intelligent work of RDP that was able to, you know, get exactly what we needed equipment-wise to make sure that we could get those effects, we could pull off the things that we wanted. You know, one of the fun things about it being Christmas, there's such an opportunity for color, right, and life and light around the movie. Yeah, it just was all kind of everybody chipping in and, and, and lending their artistry to the thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly... I had to do a double take, you know, rewind and watch it again because I thought that I had seen what you just explained that you didn't have the budget to do. 
you know, like her melting or something like that. Like there's like this sequence of events and things that are hidden from you in a sense from the bright light and her dramatic, you know, reaction to it where it's just kind of like your brain takes the next steps and kind of inserts that effect. And after I watched it, I was like, wait a minute, what did exactly happen? You know, I had to rewind. It was like, oh, wow. I was like, this is all just kind of like editing, lighting, and the way it was shot and the absolute shit fit the actress was throwing. (laughs) And it was one of the bigger risks making this movie was we could get to the finale. And the truth is, people might get to the finale and feel this way. You never want to say that it's a colossal, you know, unassailable success. But you could get to the end of this movie and be like, oh, this is just a woman writhing around in a pool of light. And it doesn't mean anything. But again with genre and again with filmmaking, the audience wants to be on your side, man. They want to have a good time. They want to see the villain vanquished and they want to have all that fun. And, you know, you look at a lot of classic horror movies and you're like, your mind is filling in a lot of these blanks and it's filling in those blanks because you want it. That's what you want to see. That's what you want to experience. And Mm -hmm. yeah, really what's funny is that the shot when we cut out of her riding around, you know, there's a shot in the hallway of her shadow kind of flailing in front of the light and then she falls and we're pulling back and there's like supposed to be some sort of uh, smoke and dust. That I think is the shot we did the most takes of and there's not a single actor in it. And it's because we Mm -hmm. had to get the timing and the smoothness of the pullout the timing of the shadow falling down and things going still. And it was like the last shot we did on one of our first days and we did like 16 or something takes of it or probably only like 10. But still, we kept resetting and being like, let's do it again, let's do it again, let's do it again. And it's just very funny the things that you think would be the simplest oftentimes take the longest. But it was worth it. It worked out in the end. So what can you do? Well, I was going to ask you, you know, I've heard from multiple directors that the best directors are problem solvers. And you've spoken about a number of things that you came up against in the movie and you had to adapt and overcome. Of all of the things that you've spoken of so far, or maybe one that you haven't even talked about, which one was the most difficult and how did you deal with it? You know, there wasn't any particularly big difficulties on The Night Nurse. I think we were very blessed to have like a very smooth set and like a great crew and great cast and You know, it's all the little things. Like, you just have to find a solution. And it's the interesting thing about making projects. It's the thing that I like about film school, which is something that people ask me, like, should I go to film school? And it's like, well, it is very expensive. And there's not a ton of jobs in the film industry when you get out. So, you know, your mileage may very much vary. But getting (laughs) the chance to make films in that kind of setting that aren't just projects is you end up holding yourself to a higher standard where not solving those problems isn't something you can hand wave away. You have to look at somebody else who did solve those problems and be like, oh, they figured it out. I didn't figure it out. And again, budgets vary, situations vary, but having that opportunity to say like, I actually can't cop out of this. I actually have to find a way to solve this problem. A good example of a stupid small problem, but I teach sound recording at film school The kitchen scene, that is the crux of the movie. I mean, that is the centerpiece of the movie. It is where our hero and our villain meet, talk, where, you know, Tallulah has her dark night of the soul, where she gets this offer from this seductive force. Like, that is very important. And it was in a kitchen that was going to be used for catering the next day. And there was like (laughs) eight refrigerators in there. And if you have done sound recording work in the field, you know 
you turn refrigerators off because they are loud as hell. And we couldn't turn them off because, you know, this is the complex we're shooting in. Like, even if we were crooks, we couldn't turn them off because they'd kick us out. We couldn't finish the film. Like, there's just no way to make it happen. But we really were very strategic about, like, what's going on? What actually do we need to capture from a sound perspective? Making sure that we're getting those sounds. And then the real, you know, dialogue of that scene is the night nurse who's outside the door. And, you know, making sure that how we're recording that sound is going to be clear and not going to be obscured by the sound of the fridge kicking on or changing. And even in the edit, you know, I spent a lot of time being like, all right, the motor for the fridge kicks on here. It's all little problems that you learn how to solve. But no film is without them. And in many ways, like, I know I've blathered on and on about really the nuts and bolts of like how this film got made and very proudly. But that's because I think that is the stuff that I think is so fun to celebrate. It's like, it's the magic trick of it, right? It's being like, Mm. it's the skill set. It's the actual craft. And none of it shows up on screen in a literal way. You don't get to watch, you know, E.T. and say, well, this is how Spielberg solved the problem of there were loud pipes in this building and it was ruining the dialogue. Like, Mm. if it doesn't show up, you know it got solved, but you just never even think what happened. And that's, I think, just the cool thing about making movies is it's all these little tricks, all these little obfuscations and doing this trick with the lighting all to hide the fact that there's so much stuff that just stuck together by duct tape. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it a cool thing to participate in. Yeah. Well, tell me about the film, The Plutonians. What's it about and what is your role in its production? Absolutely. I am the writer and I aspire to be the director. We haven't made it yet, so but it's a thing Mm -hmm. that I was working on It's a comedy basically about how lost Pluto as the ninth planet following the world's foremost Pluto expert as, you know, his life falls apart. This is speaking (laughs) of that sort of existential idea. I just thought it was very fascinating that a planet is such an important idea to us. We're so fascinated. Anything about space, you know the planets, you know their names, you know something about them. They create this sense of order and hierarchy in the universe. And the idea that you could be somebody who dedicated their entire life to studying one of nine equals, one of the most fascinating things that are around us, and you could go to bed one night, and you could wake up the next day, and even though all of your research is the same, and everything you've done is exactly identical, everyone cares about it just a little bit less. And that question of like, where is the value of our work? What is the actual meaning of this work that we've done? I think as an artist, as somebody who makes movies, which are frequently valueless and frequently feels like you're, (laughs) you know, digging a hole and then filling it back up. I really was attracted to that idea and telling that kind of story. And it's also fun because it's science, but it's also about the reason why we even do it in the first place, right? Did you study Pluto? Do you spend your whole life studying this thing because you genuinely care about Pluto and you think it's genuinely interesting? Or did you do it because... It's one of the nine planets, and it's nice to have people celebrate and care about the thing that you're doing. Like, where is that impulse from? Does it come from within, or does it come from an exterior recognition of the importance of your work? And that's what it's really about. Even though it's a comedy, and that sounds dry as a bone, that's the idea. (laughs) Sounds very interesting. I'm going to try and get this right. So with regard to the film, the description on your website says... Generously supported by the Sundance Institute Producing Lab Fellowship, the Sundance Institute Sloan Foundation Commissioning Grant, and the NYU Alfred P. Sloan Foundation Feature Film Award. 
Now, it says in your bio that you were awarded Best Undergraduate Screenplay. You are a 2020 Sundance Institute Alfred P. Sloan Foundation Fellow and the 2020 recipient of NYU's Alfred P. Sloan Foundation Feature Film Award. So tell me about these honors and how do they tie into or do they tie into receiving funding to produce the Plutonians? That's right. Yes. The uh, okay. Alvin Priestland Foundation is a great organization that puts money into science films. That's their whole thing. And as they have to reiterate at every conceivable meeting about any of these grants, they are science films and not science fiction films. Uh, um, okay. NYU has a great grant. Almost every film school, honestly, has a great production grant from Alfred P. Sloan because they want to foster telling stories about science. And I think it's like a great mission. And I ended up getting the production grant at NYU off of the Plutonians. And then through that, like Sundance had a grant through the Sloan Foundation, which then allowed my producer to submit to the Sundance Producing Program. It's all kind of snowballs off of, you know, the little things that happen. It just allowed us to get a ton of support for the Plutonians, a ton of interest. And we came very close to making it two years ago. We were really like, had a real design for it. We were planning to make it in the Czech Republic and use a bunch of like state film incentives. And then a little, you know, thing happened called the war between Russia and Ukraine. And understandably, the Czech state was like, actually, we should probably put this money towards refugees and not towards funding independent features being made in our borders. So we had to really step back and reevaluate, you know, how we were going to approach it. And we're still putting, you know, the money together and stuff. And it's interesting, like, I really am proud of that project. But I also find that, you know, I feel like a constant sense of growth, writing and making projects, I feel a constant sense that like, I'm a lot better than I was six months ago. And six months ago, I was a lot better than I was six months before that. And so it's hard to be like, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and make this thing. When in my heart, I'm like, I always want to just throw away my scripts and rewrite them. I keep wanting to build them back up from the studs. And like, <laughs> that's a dangerous feeling. It's a dangerous mm. feeling when you're like, no, 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 we got to rewrite this thing. But it's a very fun project. I'm very proud of the support that we've gotten for it. Awesome. Well, tell me about Inch by Inch Films. What is the origin of the name and what would you say its mission statement is? The origin of the name, I think it's from a thermal song. They have a line that's like, when we win, we win in inches. And I was like, I like that ethos. I like the mm -hmm. idea that our ambitions are simply to chip away and win through attrition. Like the thing about the film business is that like, it really is something where you got to just suffer indignities and <laughs> deprivation. And as long as you can capture these little wins, as long as you can feel like that you're taking it an inch at a time to just move forward, that's a worthy goal in and of itself. And that's my heroes being these people who scrapped and scrambled and who found a way to just like put modest things together and just keep surviving and staying afloat and keep making things and keep moving forward. That's what to me inch by inch is about is find a way to have another project, find a way to keep making things, find a way to stay in this business and stay artistically active, which is such a difficulty in its own right. Well, tell me about, I believe, the other part of Inch by Inch Films, a young woman by the name of Chuchia Xiaomin. I hope I pronounced that correctly. You got it. All right. What's her role in Inch by Inch Films? She's a producer and also, you know, writer and director and author in her own right. She's just 
the best is really what it is. I mean, we started inch by inch to sort of get the Plutonians off the ground and she's killing it right now. She's producing a few other films as well. Yeah. One of those people where you're like, thank God you're here. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> none of this stuff would have existed for Plutonians without Shao. So very grateful to have had her, you know, lend her tremendous talents to our modest one step at a time attempt to continue to make films and survive as filmmakers. Well, going back, maybe not as far as I might think, I don't know. What was the impetus for your journey into becoming a filmmaker? I always have liked movies. It's just been something that I've always been attracted to, but I'm not somebody who, like, from an early age, you know, I was six years old, I was shooting on Super 8 and, like, cutting film. Yeah. I actually, I've always very much doubted myself as an artist. I know I've called myself an artist, like, a billion times during this thing, but it sort of feels weird. It's a weird label to give yourself. Even now, I'm like, what a <laughs> phony way of talking about the work that I do. Like, I'm an artist. Oh, who cares? <laughs> I... I think that's what I enjoy. The more I've gotten into making films is the less it's like this mystified, essential idea of like, there are people who make art and then there's everybody else in the world. And that's just not true. Film is such a complex thing to make. It has so many disciplines that are wrapped up in it that it can feel very opaque and it can feel very removed and impossible for a lay person to make some, you know, grand artistic statement. But the truth is, like, it's just experience with how these puzzle pieces fit together and then learning to talk in complete sentences in fundamentally a new language. And, like, yeah, I, in terms of wanting to be a filmmaker, a large part of it was just, I thought, you know, I would be a writer first and foremost. And I tried writing a bunch when I was an undergrad and, and other times. And without the experience of directing and the experience of actually putting a film together, and seeing what that writing turns into, it can be very hard to just say like, okay, I'm a screenwriter, you know? And so that's really how I got into making movies in the first place was being like, well, I want to write them, but I don't understand what is good writing until I've seen it succeed or fail. And that was a big part of the decision to go to film school was just that I felt that without that push, without that commitment, without that idea that I was going to, you know, sort of spend as much time and energy as I could learning that craft, you know, I wasn't gonna be able to grow and I wasn't gonna be able to see how good I could really be. I'm not sure, you know, who knows what the future holds for any of us in any of the crafts that we've chosen. And this may be the high watermark for me, you know, like, but I really got what I wanted out of deciding to be a filmmaker. I got to go out there and try my hand and see what I could really achieve and see if I'm as smart as I think I am, you know, be like, all right, you're okay, you think you can do better? And it's like, well, let me try. Let me throw my hat in the ring. If there's anything anybody listening might be able to take away from this, I hope it's that like, I always try to talk about film in a way that demystifies it because it can be so mystified. It can be so put on a pedestal in terms of the work of a director and how you design shots and all this shit. And at the end of the day, like, it's just a job. It's just a thing you do. It's just uh, puzzle pieces that you put together. And if you're lucky enough to work with good people and you're lucky enough to have really talented crew, then you can find a way to make a really beautiful puzzle. But anyway, long-winded thing about getting into filmmaking that <laughs> I don't think even really said that much about it. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you what the first medium you shot film on was because I was hoping I was like, man, maybe he was like six years old shooting on Super 8. <laughs> Honestly, I started making films with my buddy Jack when I was in high school because we were big fucking nerds and uh, we were in a AP class or whatever. And like 
after you take the exam for those classes, there's like a month or two left in school. And they're usually like, I don't know, do a research paper. And he's like, no, we're going to make a film. And it was physics <laughs> class. And we we're making a film about black holes or whatever. And then it was just a lot of fun. Me and him were just you know going around shooting a really terrible, terrible film. What were you shooting on? We were just shooting on a, like a mini DV camera, which I still, somebody else needed it for a project that I knew and I lent it to them. I think I just got it back and there's still some shots on it, like outtakes of us putting our physics teacher in it and like trying a bunch of different stuff. And honestly, it was fun. We made some movies when we were in high school and like he launched like an online newspaper for the school. <laughs> we made a bunch of shorts for it. And I remember one of them about our gym teacher that I made. People genuinely liked, and it was a weird thing to be like, oh, hell yeah, like I've got a hit insofar as you can have a hit when you're a big loser <laughs> in high school. I was like, hey, this is, you know what? This is all right. I think I might have a future in this. And uh, I've been toiling away ever since chasing that high. Well, this is a two part question that may only have one answer. I don't know. Which director do you admire most for their technical ability, and which do you admire most for their artistic vision? Hmm. You know, I'm not somebody who really puts the most value in technical ability. I just have too much of that independent DNA, that punk rock shit mm -hmm. where you're like, you know, oh, you made it nice. You made it good. Well, fuck you. <laughs> it's clean. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. Like, I, I, sorry, Boring. I should have asked if I, exactly. <laughs> I should have asked if I can swear on this podcast. But, oh, fuck yeah. Oh, it, it made me think of uh, Sid Vicious from uh, Sid and Nancy. Boring. <laughs> exactly. It's you. you I, I would rather see people. I would rather see people's reach exceed their grasp than not mm. grasp at all. And honestly, like as much as I want to bemoan the state of like tentpole filmmaking and shit, like anybody's going out there and like making any of these whiz bang, you know, grand spectacle movies like that shit is incredibly difficult. I mean, like, the achievements of the people working on that is mind boggling. But it doesn't fill me with that same kind of passion of being like, wow, now that's somebody who can really do something. And I think in terms of like artistic vision, you know, I've always loved Kurosawa. I think that's like a real early love for me as a filmmaker because you get something like Seven Samurai, which is just great classical storytelling that has characters and it has life and it has people. And it's such a blend of everything you kind of want in this real complete package. I mean, he's also you know, an incredible technical wizard. So I'm being like, I don't respect technical ability. And I'm citing one of the great technical masters of film. But like, he's always been like a director I respect. I think partially because like, it really is fascinating to see the way that he made so many of these, you know, sort of Shakespeare influenced things. You have something like Rashomon that is sort of so avant-garde in the way that it handles a narrative, but he keeps characters and people at the core of it. You have something like High and Low, which is a great like cop drama and like one of the most engaging like first acts of anything. It's about like a kid gets kidnapped and it's all in this one apartment. And it's so like even a guy who has such largesse in his filmmaking and who, you know, commands such high budgets, he's just setting the camera in a room with great actors and like knows at that moment like just let him go man just let him act yeah i've always really liked kurosawa well what is the life of tim delaney like outside of filmmaking it's pretty great not gonna lie <laughs> I, <laughs> no complaints man i teach like i said 
I've been doing a lot of writing, which I really like. I love writing. I think that's my favorite part of filmmaking. And not just because you get to stay inside in your house and you don't have to go wake up at, you know, 4 a.m. and <laughs> stand around in the 20 degree weather doing whatever. Mm. But I, I do sound recording as well. I teach sound recording. Yeah. You know, I live in Brooklyn. I've got a lovely girlfriend and a lovely group of friends that it's pretty great over here, man. Not the most wonderful answer, but I, uh, yeah, I love to watch movies. I love to play video games. I'm just uh, living life. Oh, well, usually people say, oh, it's pretty boring, but <laughs> this is the first time I've heard, oh, it's pretty great. I dig it. <laughs> this is, hey, look, that's the thing about not to just talk about the fucking film, right? But like one of the great things about making a movie about like, hey, you can choose to find value in your life is that it kind of reminds me to make that choice. I can be a person who can feel very alone and very bored and despondent. And you ask me this question tomorrow and I'll probably be like, God damn it. My life fucking sucks. But <laughs> just talking about this thing and remembering like there's a lot of good going on around me and there's a lot of great things in my life that I can be grateful for. Even while at the same time, you know, half the time I'm talking to friends of mine being like, God, this industry's broken. It's total bullshit. What are we doing? this <laughs> next time around here. Uh, but you know, my life is great. <laughs> I'm happy. Yeah. My happy camper. Hell yeah. Awesome. Well, Tim, it has been a pleasure talking with you. It's been a pleasure uh, getting to talk at you. This has been a fantastic interview. I've loved getting the chance to answer these questions and really dive into a lot of the stuff that went into this film. Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your viewers know about? Not really. Go watch The Night Nurse. Leave a comment. Tell me how smart I am. Tell me how great I am. That would be so lovely. Or tell me I'm full of shit. You know, both work. <laughs> All right. Well, you can find that link in the description, listeners at home. And Tim, thank you again for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer that pushes the envelope into sexual taboo. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.
Jesus, call a prayer.